This week's episode is presented by 1895 Films and our content partners. Peter Hamilton's Documentary Business, a newsletter for documentary professionals, and Sunnyside of the Dock, the international marketplace for documentary and narrative experiences, coming to La Rochelle, France in June 2022. In the early 1960s, Malcolm X had a lot on his mind. One thing he didn't want to have to worry about anymore was the prominent gap between his two front teeth. I remember in 61, 62, Malcolm spent a lot of time with my father getting his uh, teeth fixed. That's Darwin Salam, son of Abdul Salam, a prominent member of the New Jersey chapter of the Nation of Islam in that period, who also happened to be a dentist. By uh, them spending a lot of time with him getting his teeth fixed, obviously Malcolm shared some of the teachings to the point to where my father was an assistant minister for Temple Number 21 in Jersey City. So, Mr. Malcolm, I, I can remember vividly when he would come to the office, he would always have a smile for me. And I, I, you know, I always had to stare up. I thought he was seven foot tall. But there was another reason Malcolm X liked to visit with and talk to Abdul Salam. During that time, my father was an avid eight millimeter film taker. So they, they talked a lot about his early film work. He would always go around with that eight millimeter. Our being a black man and being a Muslim is inseparable because Mr. Muhammad teaches us that uh, the religion of Islam is the very nature of the black man. So that when a black man is awakened and can think with his own mind and his own brain, his whole attitude is Islamic. He just had a, had a burning desire to, to record history. At, at that time, it was, it was history being made. I'm Tobiah Black, and this is Artifactual from 1895 Films. Between 2016 and 2018, 1895 Films had a series on the Smithsonian Channel called The Lost Tapes. One of those episodes was about minister and activist Malcolm X. The producers of that episode started, as they always do, by gathering footage from news sources, places like NBC, ABC, CBS, or local stations. Watching through old news footage to find sound bites was my first job in the industry, and I found it fascinating. But news footage, when you can find it, is limited. First, it tends only to cover the most well-known figures. Second, people know they're being filmed by journalists. It can make people more formal or just uncomfortable. It's not a recipe for a very intimate kind of conversation. And third, the coverage might be biased or non-existent, especially when, for example, the nearly all-white media of the 1950s and 60s was covering, or choosing not to cover, a predominantly black organization like the Nation of Islam. This is when a home movie enthusiast or amateur photographer can be a gift to documentarians, in the same way that a diarist can be so helpful to a historian. They can fill out an otherwise incomplete picture. Here's Abe Scheuermann, one of the producers of The Lost Tapes, Malcolm X, and he was looking for that kind of material for the show. Where it really started was uh, uh, Rob Kirk. Rob Kirk is our supervising producer here at 1895 Films, and he's worked behind the scenes on many of the stories we've done this season. He had actually made contact with uh, a librarian at Washington University in St. Louis. 
and at Washington University, they have the collected materials of, of a filmmaker named Henry Hampton, who made a number of films, but really most notably uh, made the PBS series Eyes on the Prize, which was about the civil rights movement. In addition to that, he also made a film called Make It Plain that was just strictly about Malcolm X. I had finally found some time to kind of review some of the finished films that Henry Hampton had made next to the EDLs. And EDL is an edit decision list, which basically means it's you know all of the you know little pieces of film that comprise the finished show are listed in, in sort of paperwork form on an EDL. There were a couple of different sources that jumped out immediately that had depictions of very early um, Nation of Islam footage. One was a name that we ultimately was a dead end. The other was just referred to as Salam footage, Dr. Salam, Dr. Salam footage, something like that. And that sort of piqued my interest. We decided to approach one of our Malcolm X historians to see if he would have any, any idea of who that person might be. And he told us that he knew who it was, that it was a, a Dr. Abdul Salam, who was Elijah Muhammad's dentist in the Nation of Islam. And in addition to that, he also enjoyed shooting home movies. So Dr. Abdul Salam did show up as I Googled, but didn't have an active practice anymore, which made sense because I kind of figured he, he was almost certainly quite old at that point. So I just started calling the numbers and um, the first couple were like disconnected, you know, and just dead, dead numbers. But the third or fourth uh, did go through. And so I left a message. I got a call uh, back from an Abdul Salam II, who was Dr. Abdul Salam, his son. I started asking him about his dad's film footage. Then he happily said that not only was he aware of it, that he had it uh, at his house. And it was, uh, I believe it, it was literally in his garage. It was, you know, kind of the, the classic archive story. And the footage was incredible. It showed interviews and rallies and speeches. What about you, brother? How do you feel about the Honorable Elijah Muhammad? Elijah Muhammad is trying to teach all our original people they are in bad shape. Yeah, go ahead, brother. Honorable Elijah Muhammad trying to wake them up. You think he'll do it? Yes, sir. He's the only man with a program, right? Yes, sir. Good enough. But we were still left with a question. Who was the man behind this footage? Unfortunately, Dr. Salam had passed away in 2017. So when it came to actual memories of their family's connection to the Nation of Islam, Abdul Salam II told us it would be best to contact his older brother, Darwin. Okay, my name is Darwin uh, Paris Salam, I am the middle child of Khadija and Abdul Salam. My father graduated from the Columbia School of Dentistry in New York in 1956. Uh, once he graduated, we lived at 118 Johnson Avenue in Newark, and that's where we stayed from 1956 to 1970. He practiced dentistry in the front of our home, and the home was large enough that we lived in the back on, on three stories. We had three stories in the house. His office had a waiting room and two operatories and a, a lab area because he, he did his own uh, lab work. My mother and father accepted the Nation of Islam during the late 50s, 50, 
59. They primarily worked with uh, Minister Malcolm X and Minister James 3X McGregor from Baltimore to establish the nation's footprint in Newark, New Jersey. In the late 1950s, the Nation of Islam's profile was rising. But Islam didn't suddenly appear in black communities in the U.S. in the middle of the 20th century. It had existed in various forms for hundreds of years. Islam in this country dates back to um, the times of enslavement. That's Dr. Elena Morgan. She's a professor of history at the University of Southern California. And a large proportion of enslaved people were from regions of West Africa where Islam was, if not the majority religion, was an extremely prevalent religion. We don't know exactly how many people were forced, right, to come to the Americas uh, from West Africa who, who practiced Islam. But we can assume that there was a, a large proportion of people and those people practiced their religion oftentimes in secret because there was a huge Christianization project. Christianity was a backward justification, right, for, for the slave trade, this idea of civilizing African, African descended slaves through religion was a huge justification after the fact. And so people were not allowed to practice Islam. So they, they did it in secret oftentimes as a, as a form of resistance. Eventually, the international slave trade is outlawed. We don't have enslaved people being transported from the African continent. And so we lose that connection, that direct connection with West African culture. And so there are still practices that are kept, but people lose the connection to why they're doing them. So you will see people recount using prayer beads, praying on rugs facing east, right? Churches that faced face east, altars that face east, things like that. All things that are obviously referencing Islam, but they don't make the connection between that and Islam itself. It's only in the Great Migration when a lot of black people start moving from the south to the north with this idea that they're going to kind of find um, a racial utopia, that things are going to be so much easier for them. When they arrive, they realize the north has its own racist issues. They're living in slums, they're living in tenements, um, they can't find jobs, right? Um, they're dealing with all kinds of other racial violence. And it's at this point that these storefront churches and mosques begin to pop up um, in cities like Detroit, Chicago, New York, right? Like all of these centers. I mean, one of these movements is the Nation of Islam. So the Nation of Islam starts in 1930 in Detroit, and it's started by this man named Svard Muhammad. Not a lot is known of him. This is very common of these kinds of storefront, right, like religious traditions. And so for him, Islam was the original religion of black people. Um, black people were not Negroes, right, as they were called back then, but instead they were members of an ancient, powerful, historical tribe called the tribe of Shabazz. This tribe doesn't actually exist. He kind of makes this up. 
he says that the white man, right, basically is is the devil, that he is kind of like a grafted being created by a mad scientist um, on an island. But the, the, the main thrust of it is that Christianity is the source of Black people's, all of Black people's woes, their oppression, their experience of um, subjugation, and that Islam is the religion that will bring them freedom and will allow them to fully kind of bloom and to be self-sufficient. People begin to say, we used to practice Islam. This is our original religion. Um, this is what will bring us spiritual fulfillment, but also get us out of right this white supremacist cycle of violence that we're in. In 1934, a new leader rose to prominence in the Nation of Islam who would help expand the group across the United States, Elijah Muhammad. So Elijah Muhammad becomes the leader of the Nation of Islam in 1934, and he's the one that kind of brings it from what is a pretty marginal, um, regional, city-wide organization to eventually something that is nationally recognized um, and uh, has like a robust national membership. For my data, brothers and sisters, the Black Nation in America <clears throat> and throughout the world. This is a call for unity between us. And it's in 1948, right in the middle of this period of national ascendance around Elijah Muhammad, that a brilliant young man still going by the name Malcolm Little, serving a 10-year prison sentence for larceny, first encounters the teachings of the Nation of Islam. His brother writes to him and says, don't eat pork, don't smoke cigarettes, I will show you how to get out of here. Right? His brother had converted to the Nation of Islam and so that was his entry point. And I think at first, you know, he's really cynical. But then, right, he gets into the materials, he starts to read about the Nation of Islam, he starts to write letters, right, to Elijah Muhammad. He eventually gets his ex. Then he becomes really, really invested in the Nation of Islam. And so when he gets out of prison in 1952, he immediately goes to meet Elijah Muhammad. And he really, really, really quickly, he just moves up the ranks and he becomes the minister of Harlem's Temple Number no. 7 by 1956. And it was probably there at Temple Number no. 7, not too far from Columbia's College of Dental Medicine, that Abdul Salam first met Malcolm X. Here's Abdul Salam's son, Darwin, again. When Malcolm was a minister in, in New York, my father spent a lot of time going back and forth from Newark to New York, listening to him teach. And they formed a, I guess, a, a camaraderie. I would tag along with my father when he would go over to Harlem on 125th Street, where Malcolm and the other ministers had their little outdoor stage where they would, you know, talk talk to the people, try to recruit them to uh, the Nation of Islam at the time. 
and Abdul Salam's camera was always rolling, often capturing Malcolm X. And the names that are worn by black people in America are like uh, names like Bunch, Powell, Murphy, Johnson. These are European names, and uh, they don't fit us. The name, these names were given to us during slavery by the slave master. And today, when we become Muslims and follow the and become followers of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, not only do we give up the uh, Christian religion, but we also give uh, back the slave master's name. And since we don't know what our own name would be today, we use X. X stands for the unknown. And uh, he teaches us that there will come a time when all of us will receive our names, the names of our forefathers again. But Abdul Salam also captured many smaller moments with ordinary members of the Nation of Islam. Salam alaikum, sister. Wa alaikum salam. May I have your name, please? Sister Eleanor Forex. Sister Eleanor Forex. Sister Charlene X, boss number 25, Newark. Sister Earlene X, uh, 7B, Queens, Long Island, Corona. Uh, sister, likely to have your views of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. Person, I think he has did a lot for the black uh, man today. I think that uh, he has also helped to um, help the civil rights uh, uh, leaders to get what they have gotten because of his agitation and because of his strong belief and what he has contributed. He has taken the fear out of the lost found Negro. Here's Darwin Salam again. I, I think he enjoyed it because he did it so much. We had to, you know, go to temple meetings and sit. And I would sit and fall asleep in chairs and uh, uh, carry his cameras around. But already by the early 60s, fractures were beginning to appear between Elijah Muhammad and Malcolm X. Malcolm was was you know he was an outstanding teacher and 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 he he taught it with his heart but uh, some people in Chicago thought you know he was getting too big and wanted him silenced basically because he had he had stepped out as as a leader of his own at the time. Here's Dr. Elena Morgan again. It was Elijah Muhammad's way or no way, right? So. You had to kind of align yourself with Elijah Muhammad's vision and what he said to do. Now, there was a point in time, right, I think where Malcolm X was so enamored of Elijah Muhammad that he was willing to do whatever he said. But I think that he began to fundamentally disagree with Elijah Muhammad on many different things. And one of those things was politics. A lot of people think that the Nation of Islam was apolitical, and that's not true. But its politics was a politics that Elijah Muhammad pushed forth, right? He was the director of those politics, and anybody that went against that was liable to be excommunicated, and and that's basically what happened to, to Malcolm. The final blow is really after the assassination of Kennedy, when Elijah Muhammad tells all of his ministers and all members of the Nation of Islam not to say anything about the assassination of Kennedy because he's so popular with the black community. And Malcolm instead goes public and says that his assassination is uh, the chickens coming home to roost. Because of uh, some statements I made concerning the president of the United States, uh, which were distorted. They were distorted. And, and yes. And, what did you say, and, Malcolm? Well, I said the same thing that everybody says, that 
uh, his assassination was the result of the climate of hate. But only, I, only, only I said the chickens came home to roost, and which means the same thing. Uh, uh, climate of hate means that this is this is the result of something. And when I said chickens coming home to roof, I mean, uh, chickens coming home to roof, I said the same thing. And that's the comment that basically gets him excommunicated from the nation of Islam. After his break um, from the nation, he goes on Hajj. Malcolm gravitates much more to uh, Sunni Islam. And on uh, a more inclusive understanding of what a racial justice project could potentially look like, he just becomes a lot more internationally um, focused. And he's able to do that because he doesn't have, right, like he doesn't have to adhere to what Elijah Muhammad wants and what Elijah Muhammad's politics are anymore. If you were excommunicated from the nation, they gave time. If you did anything, they would give you 90 days in what was called Class C, or they would give you one one year to five years in Class F. Class F meant that you had no communications with any of the believers uh, in the nation, and you couldn't come to any temples at the time. So, you know, my father followed those uh, restrictions to to the letter. He 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 didn't have any conversations with Malcolm uh, during during Malcolm's time away from the nation, and so the 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 camaraderie, the friendship, the relationship Malcolm and my father had, you know, it basically ended when he got uh, time out of the nation, and. Once, once Malcolm was excommunicated, it it was two, maybe three years before he was assassinated. On February 21st, 1965, Malcolm X stepped up to the podium at the Audubon Ballroom in New York City to deliver a speech when he was suddenly met with gunfire. One member of the Newark chapter of the Nation of Islam, Talmadge X. Hayer, who later took the name Mujahid Abdul Harim, after leaving the nation, was arrested outside the Audubon Ballroom. Two other men, Muhammad A. Aziz and Khalil Islam, were arrested later. They each spent more than 20 years in prison, despite the fact that Harim, who had confessed to the murder, said that the other two weren't involved at all. On November 18, 2021, Aziz and Islam were exonerated. Aziz was 83 years old. Islam had died in 2009. Darwin Salam was 11 at the time of Malcolm X's assassination. At that time, uh, my father was was trying to get an understanding uh, from Elijah Muhammad. You know, it wasn't brought up, but there was, you know, there was no talk in the house about Malcolm or uh, uh, the assassination other than you know, he was, taken, he was taken away from us too early. Darwin's family remained in the Nation of Islam for another decade. But when Elijah Muhammad passed away in 1975, the Nation of Islam began to fracture and shrink, which opened up members to the possibility of re-examining Malcolm X's work. After Elijah Muhammad had died in 1975, the Nation of Islam was kind of disbanded, and we were able to 
learn more about Malcolm and and Malcolm's work after he left the Nation of Islam. But it wasn't until, like I say, after Elijah Muhammad died and, and I was able to do my own research on Malcolm. But, you know, watching watching all of the film my, my father had done on Malcolm, I had a like a reference book on what Malcolm taught when he was in the nation versus what Malcolm taught when he... Uh, had accepted Orthodox Islam. And uh, a lot of people that I grew up with in the nation migrated to Orthodox Islam. And it's having those references that you can use to reassess history that's at the heart of archival material, like the films of Abdul Salam. It's being able to go back to the source that's so important. I think that that is, is so important for people, just regular people, to to create these things, you know, even if you do keep them in the bottom of a suitcase in a garage, right? We're an attic and we only have that. I think that it's important because otherwise we can't get at the perspectives, right? Of these everyday people and it's just elite and that has its value, but I'm really interested in what real people think and what real people do. People are going to be interested in that in 60 years. What's in the bottom of a suitcase in your garage that people will be interested in in 60 years? Thanks for listening to the first season of Artifactual. We'll be taking some time off, but we'll be back next year with more episodes. In the meantime, if you have a piece of archival material with an interesting story, send us an email at artifactualpod at gmail.com. This episode was written and produced by Will DePanier. It was sound designed and mixed by Fran at 17th Street Audio. We had additional production help from Alice Pitt-Leaf. Our executive producers are Tom Jennings and Ellen Farmer at 1895 Films. The music you heard in this episode came from Scan Globe, Kai Angle, and me. If you want to learn more about our documentaries, you can find us on Twitter at 1895films or at 1895films.com. And if you want more artifactual content, you can visit our website, artifactualpodcast.com dot com.